0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm happy to be joined by Christopher Auker, who is the Director of the Program of Medieval and Early Modern Studies in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. And he's also a member of the core doctoral faculty of the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley. Christopher has written broadly on the Protestant Reformation, religious politics, and theology in early modern Europe. And he's here today to talk to us about a book that was released with Cambridge University Press in 2018 titled Luther Conflict in Christendom, Reformation Europe and Christianity in the West. Christopher, congratulations on the book, and thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Zach. Uh, glad to be here.
0: Great. Well, it's great to have you here, um, Christopher. Before we talk about your book, could you first tell our listeners a little bit more about your own background and some of your own uh, academic interests?
1: Uh, yeah, um, sure. I am. Uh, I have the PhD from Princeton Seminary, a program where we uh, that really stressed. Uh, the study of theological literature and the history of theological literature. I'd also done seminars in, um, in history at the university with Peter Brown and um, William Chester Jordan. They had a great impact on me. And, um, and then uh, while writing my dissertation, uh, was resident a fellow at the Institut for Europäische Geschichte in Germany. And um, those experiences gave me a really deep interest in the history of theology but also in social history in um, the Middle Ages I was trained as a medievalist and also in the Reformation and the medieval background to the Reformation so that was that's that's something that's uh, stayed with me through my entire career and then I've taught at the Graduate Theological Union and the San Francisco Theological Seminary for many years and uh, part of my Remit was teaching the Reformation and uh, collaborated very closely with uh, Tom Brady, a professor at Berkeley in the history department, who's a close friend and uh, served as really a mentor to me over the years, and um, that that's uh, that's pretty much what set me in the direction I followed.
0: Very good. Well, Christopher, as we turn to your book and we think about Martin Luther, is just a dominant figure and the religious literature of 16th century Europe. There's really been no shortage of work done on him, especially in terms of his ideas. Um, but in your book, you argue for a new perspective on Luther that sort of incorporates the various uh, responses to Luther the, and debate over him. Um, and so what we don't get is is a lot of the typical biographical bits, which you 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 mentioned that there in the, in the introduction, um, of, of a more personal approach, but instead you, you give us more of an impersonal sketch that kind of fills out these, um, social political controversies that surround him. Um, I'm wondering if you can sort of comment here on sort of your approach to this project as a whole, what stirred the idea, um, and maybe how you undertook the research with this broader gaze, this, um, Broader gaze towards Luther's international reception, even.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, I, I guess uh, you know. The, well, I was conscious of the fact that the uh, 2017 anniversary of uh, the beginning of the uh, the beginning of the Reformation, as you know, people say in shorthand, I was going to was generating a lot of a lot of renewed interest in, in Martin Luther individually. That kind of replicates what happened 100 years ago in um, the 400th anniversary of the Reformation, uh, kind of spawned a movement that uh, uh, scholars, church historians have called the Luther Renaissance. And uh, it was really at that time that Luther individually as a kind of theological genius, began to um, dominate uh, the perspectives of church historians in particular Uh, on the Reformation, what the Reformation was. There were some church historians who began to say, uh, at that time and and afterwards, really all through much of the 20th century, that uh, the Reformation was kind of a personal achievement of Luther. There was a lot of interest in identifying what was, you know, the key idea, and, you know, the different people emphasized different things. The, you know, one that sort of stuck the longest is probably the idea of Christian freedom as, you know, something that had huge historical impact. And, uh, scholars started writing essays about how Luther was the beginning of the modern world. And, and they, you know, they made a lot of really grandiose claims and I, I guess I, I felt uh, very impatient with that. I thought that kind of a perspective um, at that time made a lot of sense uh, as a way of describing Luther's relationship to uh, the culture of a nation state. You know, Luther came to assume a lot of importance in uh, in German identity, uh, there were debates about you know whether how Luther is related to Catholic identity in German Germany you know is or is it just Protestant and, and that sort of thing. In fact, the founder of the of the Institute for Europäische Geschichte in Mainz, Josef Lords, uh, one of the founders, was um, a Catholic church historian who made part of his career as a kind of um, reclamation of Luther, uh, you know, as a, as a figure who may have gone wrong, but uh, actually had a constructive relationship to the Catholic Church. All of those trends were really influential in uh, 20th century uh, intellectual history. Of course, there's a lot more to it than that, but, um, but uh, p- you know, partly what I wanted to do was uh, try to come up with an alternative that just did not really depend on the idea that an individual and their individual and their personal, their personal charisma or um, genius uh, was a, a generator of historical change. Um, you know that kind of converges with the way historians operate. We try to you know synthesize a lot of evidence, really diverse evidence, uh, uh, hyper contextualize things, look at the developments of things as as, as uh, dependent on circumstances and uh, not just happening within circumstances. So, you know, it, it also gave me an opportunity to try to synthesize a lot of recent uh, historical research. And, um, and I hope to do it in a, in a fresh and ins- I hope what is an insightful way.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting that y- you call the book uh, sort of a, an anti-biography and and you make these really clear distinctions that i appreciated about what you're doing in the work from what you're not doing and and as you talk about in 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 the introduction um you're really drawing out the controversy and conflict surrounding luther that's a really big theme Mm -hmm. um and uh you get right to it even in the first few chapters um so as we look at these first two chapters um, I'm wondering if you, you can tell us sort of who are the primary allies and adversaries, um, many of these players with, with their own religious allegiances, um, that were participating in, in the political, social, religious controversy that, that Luther was right in the middle of.
1: Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people who appear there, so that's kind of, that's not an easy question to answer. The, um, you know uh, what happens in the first chapters is i i kind of i describe a lot of noise that's happening around luther without talking very much about what luther himself is trying to do and the noise is really centered around um around the accusation of heresy um you know the the eventual condemn- luther's eventual condemnation and and then what happens after that and what's what to me the most interesting thing that happens, and actually, if you will, if you could call this a a character or protagonist in the story, um, the the most interesting, this is kind of, I I don't know, can you have an abstract protagonist, a a, a protagonist that's not a person? The, The real protagonist is not actually Luther, but the controversy about Luther and the fact that it doesn't really have a clear resolution. I think that this lack of resolution, the fact that, you know, that um, that Luther receives this very unequivocal condemnation, um, but he it, there's no ju- judgment that is actually uh, carried out. So that proves to be impossible. And then what happens in the wake of that failure to, you know, uh, essentially, the, the thing that didn't happen was Luther wasn't brought to Rome. And the, and uh, essentially some decisions about how to punish Luther were never really made. So presumably if he had been brought to Rome, he probably, we don't really know, but he probably would have been executed as a heretic. So that's kind of what you would expect since he he couldn't really be called anything but a contumacious heretic, a, a stubborn heretic, someone who, you know, was really um, not going to let go. And, um, and that was a justification for a death penalty. So Probably that's what would have happened, didn't happen, and that gave people an opportunity to equivocate about that judgment. Not just, pro- you know, people who clearly supported Luther, like the preachers and priests, and um, who um, embraced his ideas and uh, carried them out, or some of those others uh, who adapted Luther's ideas, particularly in rebellions and cities, um, city councils eventually, uh, uh, and then. Uh, over time, princes unambiguously supporting Luther's position in the conflict, all of those people, you know, they Luther's supporters, they all kind of eventually take a certain shape in a political form. They form a coalition, the League of Small Calden. Uh, that becomes a really important center center point of the Protestant movement. But also, people who is accepted the Luther's condemnation of heresy could still for heresy, could still equivocate on what he was teaching, and it, those equivocations, I think, are just really interesting, and they tell us a lot. In my mind, they tell us a lot about how um, how relig- the texture of religious debate in that society. At the time, so you know, one of the points that I try to emphasize in the beginning chapters of the book is that this is a controversy that never actually comes to an end. It never comes to a conclusion, and over time, what happens is as it gets dragged into the politics of the Holy Roman Empire, the um, the um, the the main the main political uh, organ of the Holy Roman Empire, the Imperial Diet, comes to a position where they. Except Protestants, uh, even though they are religious heretics by any proper definition, of course not to Protestants. uh, But um, so you you have the situation, and a lot of that actually that development hinges on debates over church property that are um, unleashed by uh, by the religious movement. You know, when a town takes, you know, town decides that you know these priests are are. Are actually not teaching the gospel, so we're going to appoint people to take their place. Well, they're infringing on property rights of those priests, of the people who appoint them, the properties that support those ministries, and uh, so they they end up they um, they end up uh, actually um, uh, giving birth to a very large number of lawsuits that um, that uh, uh, that eventually um, force the Imperial Diet, so the the political body of the estates of the Holy Roman Empire to uh, reach a compromise that says, okay, we'll let people who, you know, belong to this, uh, uh, to the, to this group, they end up, you know, essentially it's the, the religion represented and defended by the League of Small Calden, um, which, you know, the centerpiece of that is the the Augsburg Confession, the 1530 uh, Confession that was, um, that was uh, debated at the Imperial Diet in Augsburg in, in 1530. The Augsburg Confession, you know, becomes the kind of the defining thing for that group. They say, "Well, yeah, we'll we'll let them use their property under all sorts of conditions." That, of course, you know, spawn all co- kinds of additional conflicts. So, yeah, the, the, you know, there's a lot of there's there are a lot of interesting little things that happen in that in in that in a generation of experiences that um, yield that uh, compromise. But uh, the the long and the short of it is it ends up being a debate that is uh, where the where the parties agree that they're going to disagree.
0: Very good. Well, Christopher, you go on to to talk about the political anatomy of the Luther affair through next chapter. Um, And you detail these these various contextual dimensions that sort of explain both the depth and then the persistence of the Luther controversy. Um, Can you talk to us about how you're demonstrating the connectedness of these various dimensions um, and and what you describe as a genuine symbiosis between these religious players that are, that are involved?
1: Uh, Yeah. So um, what I, what I try to do, so there's, you know, part of what I described has a certain kind of act has, has an accidental quality. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say, look, there's, there's a lot of stuff that just happens, you know, it's in the stuff that just happens is the familiar stuff of the Reformation. It doesn't have a necessity bound, you know, bound to it. It's not like Luther had this idea. And of course that idea, you know, meant that people had to do, you know, had to reject the priesthood and oppose the papacy or, uh, or uh, persecute Anabaptists, whatever you know whatever you want. I rather than say that I uh, I've tried to say look there's there are all these things that happen so in in this somewhat chaotic array of of things um, where do, where do we find where do we find shape and form what are the patterns that prove to be the most Influential over time. So rather than an influential individual, what what are influential patterns, or what patterns indicate influence over time? And um, I, I to to my thinking, and I I suppose there would be others as well. The ones that are quite unique to the religious controversy, um, that is to say, they have a, a shape that is clearly closely related to the religious controversy, are four. Um, which I describe as dimensions. So one would be a papal dimension, another I call a conciliar dimension, another an imperial dimension, and finally a property dimension. And the th- these, these four dimensions, it seems to me, operate a little bit distinctly, um, but they also overlap. So, um, for example, the papal dimension is... Consists of the condemnation of Luther, but then also the attempt to prosecute heresy um, and uh, prosecute Lutheran heresy uh, afterwards. And um, I think what's you know if you if you look at this in the impersonal way that uh, I'm proposing, what's really interesting about that papal dimension of this religious conflict is not just that you know a certain Viewpoint is stigmatized, but that viewpoint that point viewpoint is stigmatized so aggressively, and, com- and that and that and that stigma is communicated so thoroughly that uh, it seems to me perfectly reasonable to say that the uh, one of the great engines of spreading this conflict and making it a continental affair is actually the papacy. The alternative to that is to say is to just try to describe the continent wide interest in Luther and um, and debate over Luther as something that's generated by people who take Luther's ideas. They learn them in Wittenberg and then or, or by reading a book and spread them in other places. And of course, there's a lot of that happening, too. But when you look closely at the spread of those ideas, what you discover is that they're not all strictly Lutheran. Um, they don't all you know, correlate really closely with Luther, necessarily with Luther's own teachings. Sometimes those preachers coming out of Wittenberg remain network with Wittenberg. Sometimes they end up being quite independent. Um, there are a lot of ambiguities in the kind of image that gets communicated uh, through that, that kind of personal individual spread of, of um, teachings. Not so with a case of heresy it's a really it's a really it's a really firm image that gets communicated. This guy's a heretic. here are some laws. this is why it's wrong. this is what's going to happen and then wow you suddenly you you see a few people you hear learn of a few people who are actually being executed for this. That does a lot to communicate um not not just a particular position in the debate but also um. The, the character of the debate as something really big. It helps make it big. So um, the, you know, the papal, a papal dimension. The conciliar dimension is really interesting because early on in this conflict, uh, there is an appeal to a church council, and that becomes that appeal to a church council, Luther makes an appeal, he appeals his case to a council. And that becomes an important element of basically postponing any further action. It allows the both the papacy, the Holy Roman Emperor, and the uh, the Pope actually is a bit ambiguous about this, but the, some popes actually support the idea, and the Holy Roman Emperor and the German Estates, the Catholic German Estates, to agree that um, that the condemnation of Luther is is not a final judgment, so that uh, there there remain open questions about this about this uh, about this character, and uh, it it's what basically allows. Um, allows the the Protestants to uh, continue their case, and particularly in the Imperial Diet, a faction of the uh, Estates, it allows them to, in a, a few of the princes and some and some cities, to uh, promote the idea that uh, the, the the reforms that Luther is proposing actually counts as orthodoxy, and then uh, that that Imperial. Uh, dimension of this conflict gets carried over into the property debate and um, uh, the pr- property debate as I, I i said before is is really um is really a very concrete way that people end up arguing about uh, whether or not a the new teaching can be basically continued in one place or another uh, those all things are are not only concurrent, but they're kind of mutually reinforcing.
0: Yeah. And you know, one thing that's really interesting about your book, um, just in addition to the detail on the controversy in Luther's day and these various dimensions is that the controversy about him, it went into years after his death um, and, and after peace of Augsburg 30 years war into the enlightenment and all the way into, you know, how he's been appropriated into American revival. Um, can you talk to us about how you're engaging all of these really wide ranging sources um, and maybe speak to how the controversy around Luther has contributed to Christianity as a whole more, more broadly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. I, thanks. I, I think that's, it's really, really important to think about these things. Um, and also really interesting to think about them, you know, like, um, it seems to me that, the, um, you know, to talk really broadly about this, that the, the situation of this, uh, unresolved controversy and the kind of, uh, detente that gets established, you know, we associate it mostly with the, um, the peace of Augsburg in 1555 it's, you know, it's, it's more interestingly complicated than that, but that, that is a good signpost. Um, One of the, one of the interesting things about that is you, you, it creates, it creates this, this uh, environment of, of religious competition. So you end up having um, a multiple of groups who claim to be the more accurate representation of the true Christian faith, and um, you know, all theologians who are actually quite important professionals uh, and educators and uh, uh, courtiers uh, at the time, they all agree that you know that Christianity is a singular religion. It's represented by the creed. It uh, it there is one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. This is confessed by you know all um, all these churches. The only exception to that would be some of the Anabaptists who are truly brutally persecuted, um, and um, the um, the one the one true Christian faith. So you know, really, what happens is you have a situation of uh, that's created of competing orthodoxies. I think there is in in conflict uh, that a conflict. This is an idea that comes from the early conflict sociologist Georg Zimmel— that in a conflict, uh, what matters is not just the way in which parties dis, uh, parties oppose one another, distinguish each other, but there's a relationship that's created between those parties, and uh, that relationship can form a kind of codependence. And I think that's really present in Catholic and Protestant conflict after the Reformation. So, you know, historians have frequently um, uh, described in in Recent years, uh, up until recent years, uh, they've described the the Reformation as uh, as a as producing uh, confessional states, and so you have states that uh, you know form a, a kind of coherent idea of what the society is around its Catholic or Lutheran or Calvinist uh, confession. And I, I, I'm not really satisfied with that because it it suggests the and many historians, it's become sort of a cottage industry of sort of picking at this idea and trying to pick it apart and criticize it. So I, I'm like totally unoriginal in doing that. But the um to me, you know the one of the big problems with it is that it it uh, it 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 relies on the notion that the that a confessional state is very socially and culturally cohesive, and it's that cohesiveness that really matters. That had the advantage for historians to um, you know appreciate, uh, religious re- religious interests, debates, and also theological ones. Uh, so the theologians play a really important role in developing confessional identity. There's some church historians that German, uh, the Göttingen Church historian Thomas Kaufmann, for example, has emphasized this very productively. They play a really important role in sort of uh, assuming the role of experts who can, you know, define what culture is and the terms of, you know, Lutheran confession, all that. Well, um, the view that I'm proposing here is a little bit different. It's suggesting that what matters here is not the coherence of the view, but the interdependence that is created by, you know, uh, juxtaposing your position to, as let's say, a Lutheran position over against a Calvinist or reformed or um, Catholic position. and um and I think there's you could even go so far as to say that there is a um, that there's a, a, a sense of affinity that you that if that religious affinities are are relative and that um the that the three main confessions, have a sense of affinity with each other over against other largest, larger religious differentiations, like the difference between Christians and Muslims or Christians and Jews. Um, what, what I'm trying to do, um, in this book is view the, the, the effect of the reformation as the creation of a kind of cultural pluralism that has a certain dynamic. Um, so, yeah, it's true. Confessional identity is like something quite important, but it's not. It it's it's not a necessarily in and of itself a totality, and um, it could. It, it's might be better to think of it as a piece of a larger totality. Um, let's call it Christendom, and uh, and so. Um, if the contrast and also the conflict between Christendom and Islam, as you know, they commonly perceive the Ottoman-Habsburg uh, uh, competition in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, is perhaps equally, maybe even more definitive. I think if we start thinking in these terms, we can look at pluralism as something that is in. And it doesn't create a very peaceful society, but it is, you could say, socially productive. So the variety is something that, you know, helps people think of multiple ways that they're associated with each other and others. So, yeah, sure. I might be closer to this as a Lutheran. I might be closer to this other Saxon Lutheran over here. Um, you know, I, we have all these debates about whether or not. This, yeah, you know, where we we and Calvinists even belong to the same religion or Catholic, uh, you know, are we closer proximity to Catholics? You can detect a lot of those kinds of things in debates over the Eucharist and predestination, all kinds of you know interesting theological problems. But um, but there's also this consciousness that um, Christendom actually still, even with all these debates, that it forms a Um, uh, forms a a block over against Islam. I I think that's actually quite important for the development of European consciousness. Um, And that sensibility changes over time. And eventually, just to be really brief about it, in the 18th and 19th centuries, it changes into a more, um, you could say, a more pacific kind of pluralism um, where... Uh, you know, the, the world is perceived to basically have far more religious differentiations within it. And um, uh, and uh, that, it seems to me, is far more like what the world looks like right now than um, the idea of a confessional state. So, I, you know, I think I'm, what I'm trying to do, I'm, I'm not explaining this very well, but I'm, what I'm trying to do is suggest a way to... Think of the um, think of the effect of the past on the present. That embraces pluralism as uh, as a productive element of uh, religious conflict within Europe.
0: Yeah, well, Christopher, I, I I think you explained it well, and 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 I think you've you've really demonstrated the complexity of the Reformation and and showing how it 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 sits upon these different interests and opinions of people at different levels throughout society and and you've also demonstrated diversity of opinion on luther um that's gone on even into the present um well christopher with 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 this book now a few years behind you um and now before we wrap up today uh can you share with our listeners what you've been working on uh recently what what they might expect from you in the future
1: sure thanks um uh, right now, I'm I'm finishing a follow-up to this book, uh, which um, will probably have the title Hybrid Reformations. Um, that I hope will be out next year. Um, th- what I'm what I'm looking at there is in this next book. It, it's a narrower focus on certain social and intellectual dimensions of the um, of the generation of the Reformation, so Luther's generation. And um, and before, so uh, so what I want to do is highlight and draw attention to some of the things that are marginal to the religious controversy that happen on its margins, but actually say more about what um, what is uh, f- what what is effective and formative in um, in uh, in the emergence of Protestantism. Than, uh, than uh, then perhaps you know the the stuff that's right at, right at, at its center. So, those include those include some uh, examples of uh, well, importantly, actually, they include people who get who um, who are accused of Anabaptism. So, Anabaptists, whether real Anabaptists or so-called Anabaptists. Uh, also things that happen on on the intellectual periphery so uh, the question of nominalism is um, is nominalism is nominalism an important intellectual force um, and is can Luther's theology be called nominalist and um, I, I think the answer is um, an, actually no on both counts uh, so uh, I have I have a, particular argument about that. Uh, biblical interpretation, I've uh, argued in another book that the idea that um, you know, the literal interpretation of the Bible as a kind of Renaissance or Reformation invention is really problematic. And there's a lot of evidence in uh, pre-Reformation uh, school commentaries, so scholastic commentaries in the 14th and 15th centuries that show how a conceptualization of the text as a a kind of literary document with theological content, uh, develops and becomes, and converges with uh, Renaissance humanism, becomes really important in the Reformation. I'm taking another look at that idea in this next book that focuses on uh, figurative meaning into allegory. So, is the Reformation, Protestantism, something in it, or, for that matter, Renaissance uh, biblical scholarship something inimical to allegory? And I argue, no, that's not the case at all. That misconstrues how both how allegory functioned in the Middle Ages and in the Reformation. So, these are these are things that are not really at the center of of the emergence of Protestant, Protestantism. The debate over the papacy, the idea of justification by faith you know, the uh, uh, revisions of sacramental theology, those sorts of things, uh, or, uh, or rebellion, urban rebellions um, as, and social movements related to that. These are kind of things on the periphery rather than the peasants' war, people struggling, uh, people using accusations of Anabaptism to advance their property interests after the peasants' war, stuff like that. I'm um, trying to show how this periphery actually tells us more about the emergence of this pluralistic Europe than, um, and and, this, and the weirdnesses about pluralism within Europe uh, than uh, focusing on the center of religious debate.
0: Very good. Well, we wish you the best with your research and, and those writing projects. Uh, but for now, we're glad you've you've written this book. It's called Luther, Conflict and Christendom, Reformation Europe and Christianity in the West. It's out in 2018 with Cambridge University Press. And Christopher, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.